This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is Mobile Suit Breakdown Part 1.7, Free Fallen, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, longtime Gundam fan, and if you think about it, we are all mobile suits for our brains. And I'm Nina, anime fan and happy to be putting my liberal arts education to use. This week, we discuss Mobile Suit Gundam Episode 7, The Core Fighters Escape. Before we begin, a special shout-out and thank you to Unknown Garuda, Tukawaf, Figaro, But Architecture, Sean DMR, and HWG for reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. If you're enjoying Mobile Suit Breakdown, leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice is the best way to support us. The White Base is trapped on Earth, cut off from Federation forces with no way to contact them, and a massive Xeon army blocking their way. On the bridge, the crew debates different plans for escape, turning again to the issue of the refugees. Between damage from its many battles and the added weight of so many passengers, the White Base cannot return to orbit, and Kai reminds everyone that those extra mouths mean the White Base will soon run out of food. Lieutenant Reed wants to leave them on the ground as soon as possible, never mind that they are in Xeon territory. But Bright refuses. It is their duty as soldiers to protect the civilians. Amuro has a plan. If they can boost the power of the White Base's catapult and launch a single core fighter on a ballistic trajectory over the Xeon base, it might just be able to reach Federation territory and summon help. He volunteers to fly the mission himself. It was his idea. If it fails, there will only be one casualty. He launches successfully, but the intense G-forces cause him to black out, and the activity is noticed by Xeon surveillance planes. Char eagerly launches on an intercept course. Meanwhile, the refugees have staged a riot, taking Fraubo and the orphans hostage. Bright tries to negotiate with them, but they demand that he land them at once, that he save them, that he take them somewhere safe. One tries to justify the kidnapping, saying that taking hostages was the only way for them to negotiate. But there is no time to resolve the situation. Bright is needed on the bridge. Amuro, unconscious, is not responding, and Shar is closing in. Sela's voice over the radio brings Amuro back just in time. He dodges, dogfights, wounds Shar's craft, but a full squadron, six dops, closes with him. Bright gives the order to return to the White Base. Mission aborted. Kai snickers about Amuro's failure, earning him a crack across the jaw from Bright, and a warning, that sort of talk won't be tolerated. Now Garma and the Gao attack the White Base, and Amuro returns at once to the Gundam. Shar switches to his Zaku, as the two mobile suits duel in free fall and the white base struggles to fight off attacking fighters. The refugees invade the bridge and stage a sit-in, refusing to move until they are allowed to land on Earth. For once, Shar outfights Amuro, and the Gundam is forced to retreat, but a message from Garma chills Shar to the bone. The Xeon analysis reveals the Gundam's capabilities may be far greater than what it has already shown. 
back on the bridge, Amuro finds it still occupied by the refugees. He berates them for only thinking about themselves, before Mirai intervenes to defuse the situation. Thanks to her, Frau and the kids return safely to the bridge, and Frau, true to form, only wants to know if Amuro is okay. The major story arc of the episode, we sort of have two. The attempt to send Amuro in the core fighter on a ballistic trajectory so that he can contact the Federation feels secondary to the main story of what do we do with the refugees and the refugees taking hostages and that whole crisis throughout the episode. It's really hard to tell what the show thinks about the refugees and their actions. We get the contrasting conversations. We get the bridge saying, uh, I guess we could leave them, but this is Zeon territory and it'd be dangerous. We don't get any indication of how Zeon is expected to treat civilian prisoners. So we don't know if it's likely to be reasonably humane or not but that it's not an ideal situation. And then we jump to the refugees, at least in this episode, the focus is largely on older people who are all talking about wanting to set foot on Earth one last time before they die. And the first thing that I thought of was what we have here is a fundamental misunderstanding between these two groups of people. Because the younger folks, the people on the bridge, think obviously everybody wants to live. The older people don't care about surviving, gauged by their comments. They're all talking about like they could die tomorrow and that would be fine as long as they got to see Earth again. They just want to land on Earth. Some of them, there are specific people they hope to find or see, but it fundamentally comes down to we want to get on Earth again and then whatever. And this fundamental misunderstanding between these two groups of people fuels the bulk of the conflict through the rest of the show. It might even fuel all of the conflict. So much of what the refugees ask Bright for is impossible. We want to know exactly when we'll land on Earth. How this isn't a cruise ship. How is he supposed to tell you that? They're not going to land unless it's safe, and it might not. It might be safe tomorrow, or it might be safe in two weeks. Who knows? One of them demands being set down somewhere safe. It's like, well, Zeon territory is certainly not safe, but since we're at war, neither is Federation territory, really. So what does safe mean? One of the younger adults is a woman with a baby. And oh, I like save my baby. What do you think we're trying to do? You're really helping by taking hostages and occupying the bridge during combat. Yeah, they have a sit-in, an honest-to-God sit-in. Going back to that fundamental misunderstanding... They don't mean safe forever. Or do you think they do? You think they're asking for a lot of conflicting things? I think they're asking for a lot of conflicting things. I think they have a lot of unreasonable expectations. As Amuro says when he comes back from the fight and he finds them on the bridge, we can't give you what you want. It's impossible. Think about somebody besides yourself for once. It's hard for me not to look at this situation in a more current lens. And with the current lens, what I see <laughs> is some old folks asking entirely unreasonable things of a working age population while taking an even younger population hostage, which sounds like a metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> and 
That's very much a current issue for Japan and the world in this year, 2018. But I'm not so sure it wasn't an issue back in the 1970s. This is the era when that phrase, don't trust anyone over 30, was coined back in 1964. So there was a phrase used to describe the temperament of Japanese youth of the 1970s, and it's the sanmushugi, or the three no principle of no drive or indolence, no interest, indifference, and no sense of responsibility. That really describes our characters, doesn't it? <laughs> it clearly describes how some of the older folks think of our characters. Mirai is able to work her magic somehow convincing the older folks that she takes their concerns seriously and will address them if they would just leave the bridge. Mirai would be a great politician. For all we know, she is. We don't know what her family is famous for yet. <laughs> just that she's famous. I was hoping for a cathartic moment where the old people see how hard all the kids are struggling and realize how unreasonable they're being. But of course, we don't get that. One point that the group of older folks make is that many of them were forced to emigrate to the sides. And I think this ties back to something Sela said to Bright back in episode two. He says that this is his first trip into space. And Sela says, oh, so you're one of the elite then, suggesting that the elite were allowed to remain on Earth while the underclasses were forced into space. Yeah, my main wonder here is... What precisely do they mean by force? Because there's force like a press gang. There's force like being rounded up and forced onto ships and sent into space. Or there's force like there are no jobs and no food. And if you don't leave, you and your family will probably starve to death. So we actually spend a lot of this episode focused on Kai, I think. I leave the episode feeling... Like, what people really object to more than what Kai says is his attitude. If he said the things that he says from a different place with a different attitude, he wouldn't make people nearly so angry. He points out that they can't keep a bunch of civilians with them forever. Kai does his weaselly, sort of inconvenient truth statement. I don't think he directly advocates for leaving people in Xeon territory. Oh, Bright, how are you going to feed everybody? Oh, Bright, how are you going to deal with all of these people? Are you going to keep them forever? He's always asking questions. He never expresses an opinion about anything. It's always reminders about things that supposedly you already know. When Kai points out, oh, you better watch out, they're going to be gunning for you. you know, there's a way a person could say that, that Amuro would not have gotten angry. It would have been, oh, look after yourself out there. They're going to be gunning for you and we're counting on you. Right. But Kai says it with a little twist to it. Amuro finally snaps at him. What is wrong with you? And he asks him, one, aren't you an adult? Which creates for us this idea that there are somewhat different expectations of behavior. That while this sassy behavior might have been understandable in a young person, Kai really needs to step up. And we get sort of an interesting, and I think the best Kai line so far, and perhaps the most indicative of who he is... Oh, I'm just a coward. Don't mind me. And Kai's response to all of this tells us the role that he plays in the story. Because he's this snarky coward who everyone hates, he can kind of coast along in that role. 
and say whatever he wants. <laughs> it gives him freedom to say and do certain things because he's already established to everyone, oh, I'm just this annoying coward that you're saddled with. But, and it gets interrupted so we don't get to see it come to fruition, towards the end of the episode, while Amuro and Shar are fighting in freefall, Kai notices that the Gundam is in the way of their own firing position, so they can't really support the Gundam, and is about to run off the bridge and presumably do something about it, without anybody ordering him to or pointing it out to him, and without any apparent snark or attitude, when he gets stopped by all of the refugees showing up and occupying the bridge. So back in episode three, Kai actually had a very similar moment when he was trying to fire on the Xeon supply ship and he says something like, the core fighter's in the way. And he tries to get the bridge to order Ryu out of the way, but he can't. And so he goes out in the gun tank. I think Kai might at this point be running or intending to run to the gun tank. For all Kai's unhelpful commentary, I think he does care. And we see that in this scene. And he wants to help. Yeah, I think he's been performing, not caring. Or because of his personality or his life experiences, he doesn't have a lot of tolerance for trying to put a pretty face on what's happening. A lot of what everyone else is asking him to do is to put a nice sheen on a really bad situation, and he's just not willing to do that. In a lot of Western theater, you get a character that we think of as the fool character, who is mostly full of nonsense, but often in that nonsense, they are speaking deep philosophical truths <laughs> that need to be said to the characters in the story. And the reason they can say those things, the reason they can be more truthful than other characters is because they're the fool, because everyone discounts them. And I wonder if Kai is meant to occupy that role in this story and whether that is coming from a Western theater influence or if there's a similar role in various forms of Japanese theater, like No, like Kyogen, like Bunraku, like Kabuki. And if they have a similar fool or coward role and if that role occupies a similar space in the story. Sometimes the fool character is also used as the butt of jokes in physical comedy routines. Ha. And I'm wondering if when Bright... Dex Kai. Yeah, when Bright knocks Kai around, if that's meant to be part of that tradition, or if that's a statement by Bright that we have no room for fools on this ship. Naturally, in this episode, when Manuel did not make an appearance, you focused on Kai. Oh, no, Manuel made an appearance in that opening scene when they're trying to change a bunch of the wiring and systems oh. on the bridge. One of the older Navy men pulls out a Manuel. All right. Chalk yeah. up another one for Manuel. So we're given just enough in this episode to know that Kai does care. You want to see someone who doesn't care? Let's talk about Amuro and Hayato and Frabo. They're, it's like they're forming some sort of triangular relationship. Oh, do you think Hayato is in like, love with like Frabo? Like a relationship where emotions move around in a triangle of some kind. D you think Hayato's into Frabo? Did you see the stink eye he gave Amuro? 
when Fraubo was in trouble and Amuro was not freaking out about it? See, I think that's more friendly. I, that's because Frabo always looks after Amuro and is always concerned about Amuro. Remember episode one mm-hmm. when she chews out Hayato? You know, Amuro's your neighbor. You were supposed to look after him and he looks guilty. I think Hayato, I think we get the stink eye from Hayato because Hayato is our one of our most like emotionally reactive and emotionally expressive characters. And in the moment, Amuro says, oh, well, I can only do what I can do, right? I have this mission. I have to do it. I can't help Frabo right now. The best way I can help Frabo right now is to complete my mission in the core fighter. To quote from the excellent Terry Pratchett, personal is not the same as important. However, he gets back. The first thing Frabo asks him is, oh, are you okay? You're not injured? He doesn't ask her anything. Are you all right? Were you scared? Is everything okay now? Nothing. Well, it's good that she's free so that she can take care of him. At this point in recording, Nina made a sound of pure rage, which was too powerful for our microphones. In order to prevent damage to our listeners' ears, we have replaced it. It's good that she's free so that she can take care of him. This episode gives us a lot of different characters interacting with Amuro in interesting ways. We talked about Kai earlier and how Kai is constantly needling Amuro. We talked about Hayato and how he gives Amuro nuclear-level stink eye. We also see Sela in a really supportive role for Amuro. Well, so Sela occupies such an interesting place in this whole thing. One, Sela's calm voice coming through the communication systems is a trope now. It's established. (laughs) Sela is the calm voice reaching out to Amuro wherever he is. But it's carrots and sticks, right? The first comment she gives him when he says, what you're asking me is impossible, I can't do it, is, well, you want to survive, don't you? You want to live, right? (laughs) Then you have to do it. (laughs) Feels pretty stick-like. The counter being her very supportive, No one is doing any of this with very much confidence. (laughs) You have a lot of talent. What her whole vibe towards him in this episode brought me back to is your comment that he is characterized as having a mother complex and that Sela is fulfilling a mother role for Amuro now. Threatening, cajoling, supportive as needed, right? Whatever is necessary to get him out into the world and doing his thing. Yeah. Doing his Gundam thing. So this Sela as mother role comes to the fore when Frau is otherwise occupied. When Fraubo is unable to be Amuro's mother. Fraubo is normal mom. Sela is combat mom. Battle mom. <laughs> battle mom is not the real mom. She's the battle mom. If the, any real, you, the real mom is down on Earth doing mom stuff, mom stuff. not battle stuff. <laughs> if any of you recognize that reference. Cool. I wish I had a prize to send you. Someday we'll have t-shirts. We get some great new music yes. in this episode. The Pianos of Tension. <laughs> when we get two new music pieces, one at the very beginning... When we see the inside of the white base, we see the disgruntled old people, and we get a very discordant, tense kind of piano music. And then later on, when Amuro returns to the white base and goes out in the Gundam, we get a very... Unsettling. 
Yeah, it's piano battle music that doesn't really even feel like battle music. Usually when we see battles in Gundam, the music syncs up very clearly to the action that's happening. And in this episode, there's a definite disconnection between the music and the action. I noticed something else very interesting in this combat. There's a moment when Amuro stops panicking and gets himself under control and goes into what I think of as his fighting char mode. And part of the way they indicate this in the show is they have the color palette of him and the inside of the cockpit change. Everything goes blue. When Char's color palette switches to blue, it's like it's panic for him. He's just been told by Garma that the Gundam actually has capabilities vastly beyond what he thought, that he's only been facing one version of it. And he's there's sweat pouring down his face underneath the mask. This is one of the first times we see him really consult someone else. We see a lot of people depend on Char. We don't see him really depend on anybody until this moment when he somewhat desperately asks Garma, what should we, what do I do? What do we do? How do we fight this monster? And Garma very calmly tells him, just come back. We'll sort it out. But for now, you need to quit the field. Great moment with Garma and Char earlier on in the episode when Char dashes off to go pursue the core fighter and Garma twirls his hair and says, he hasn't changed a bit. I'm shipping Sharma is what I'm saying. That's that's their couple name, by the way. Sharma. Char Charma. <laughs> Char Garma. Sharma. Sharma. On Garma's ship, they're pouring over all of the information they've been able to amass about the Gundam. And they mention, you know, it's as accurate as we could get by laser measurements. That's actually a thing we can do now. They have tools that use a laser to measure things. It's a handy thing. You can buy one at the hardware store and use it around the house. A lot of golf players use them. Carpenters, tons of people use them. It's like a common household gadget now. But I wonder, did they even have laser measurement at the time? And was it so state of the art that it was a military grade technology that no one else had? I noticed Char deploys another new tactic. We've commented before about how his fighting style against the Gundam seems to be evolving in each episode. Here, during the freefall combat, Char focuses all of his fire very precisely on the Gundam's head. Sela realizes what he's doing and says, Amuro, concentrated fire might get through the Gundam's armor. Mm-hmm. It also means that Amuro is kept off balance, and we see that in the fight. He's barely able to fight back. We see an even more direct parallel between the white base and an aircraft carrier when the core fighter returns, and they deploy what they call the landing hook, which... I will do a bit more research on this for later in the episode, but when you land a fighter plane on an aircraft carrier, there are essentially giant rubber bands on the carrier itself on the landing strip, and there's a hook on the underside of your plane, and you have to catch that hook on some number of those giant rubber bands so that you stop before you reach the end of the runway, because obviously it's, it's much shorter than a land runway would be. And if you don't catch enough of the hooks, you just go shooting off the end of the aircraft carrier and have to circle around and try again. 
or wreck in the sea. Again, I think Amuro has a death wish. When he proposes this mission and volunteers for it, somebody on the bridge tells him how dangerous it's going to be. And Amuro says, eh, if somebody's going to die, it better be me. Which is actually quite foolhardy because he's their best Gundam pilot. So if somebody were going to die, ideally it wouldn't be him. He might also be their most experienced core fighter pilot. I just got that. Core fighter because it's the core of the Gundam. Ha 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 ha. Yep. Yeah, there's a scene where they they fit the core fighter back into the main body of the Gundam, and it's basically the midsection. I think we need to update the tracker for people reminding Amuro to eat. It's true. It's at least five episodes out of the seven. Yes. Someone tells Amuro to eat in episodes one, three, four, six, and now episode seven. And I'm not convinced that he doesn't get reminded to eat in those other two episodes that are missing. I would have to go back and rewatch them. If you remember someone telling Amuro to eat in any of those other episodes, let us know. Much of the action of this episode centers on the hostage crisis on the White Base. While not an exhaustive list, I'm sure, Wikipedia lists 32 notable hostage crises in the 1970s, including three in Japan, compared with two notable crises in the 60s and 20 in the 80s. So clearly this was peak hostage crisis. Approximately a third of these were airplane hijackings. Of the most relevance to this episode is the hijacking of Japan Airlines Flight 472. A plane en route from Paris to Tokyo was hijacked by five armed members of the Japanese Red Army. They took the passengers and crew hostage and demanded $6 million in ransom and the release of nine of their members from prison. The Japanese government accepted the demands, in contrast with U.S. and Europe policy of non-negotiation, and all hostages were safely freed. Several of the JRA terrorists involved are still at large, for all we know. While I don't think this episode is meant to evoke one particular incident, it's worth noting that a Japanese audience at this time would have heard about these sorts of incidents regularly. This would have seemed familiar, as would the measured response of the crew, which is to say, no SWAT team, no guns blazing, and generally being willing to negotiate with the hostage takers. It's a throwaway line in the episode, but they talk about taking laser measurements of the Gundam, which made me wonder about the history of laser measurement. Britannica gives the date of creation of laser rangefinding as 1965. However, in that scene, they may be using LIDAR instead, which is an acronym that stands for Light Detection and Ranging, or a portmanteau of light and radar. This technology originated in the early 1960s when it was first used to measure clouds, but came to public prominence in 1971 when Apollo 15 used it to map the surface of the moon. LIDAR is used to make three-dimensional representations of a target by illuminating it with a pulsed laser and measuring the reflected pulses with a sensor. And I've read speculation talking about the function of the Zaku Mono Eye. We know there's a camera in there, but it's not the only camera. And I have seen some Gundam fans speculate that the bright light of the mono-eye might actually be a laser used for measurements. What does it mean to say that Amuro is a character with a mother complex? Well, 
We have to go back to the turn of the century and the dawn of psychoanalysis to investigate this one. And since I just said the words mother, complex, turn of the century, and psychoanalysis, you may already be thinking about Freud and his famous theory of the Oedipus complex. But hold up, that's a good guess, but it's not quite right. Starting from the very beginning, psychoanalysis is a bunch of theories about how the human mind works, as well as techniques for analyzing it. The field started to come into its own in the 1890s and developed rapidly in the decades that followed. As always happens, lots of different people, theorists, researchers, clinicians, and patients, contributed to the development of psychoanalysis, but an Austrian neurologist named Sigmund Freud got all the credit. <laughs> to dramatically oversimplify Freud's theories, everyone has deep-rooted sexual desires that they're not allowed to have. This creates conflict between the conscious and unconscious parts of the mind, and that conflict can seriously mess a person up. At the heart of all of this, in Freud's thinking, is the Oedipus Complex, named for the Greek mythic character Oedipus, who unwittingly killed his father, Laius, and married his mother, Jocasta. Freud posited that adults have neuroses and other mental health issues because, as children, they developed unconscious sexual feelings toward one parent and a sense of resentment and competition toward the other. The validity of the Oedipus Complex is now pretty widely rejected, but the idea was incredibly influential in that early part of the 20th century. It's relevant for us because it was in seeking to go beyond the Oedipus complex that some of Freud's successors developed the idea of the mother complex. One of Freud's collaborators and successors was Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung. You may have heard of Jung before, but even if you haven't, you've definitely heard of many of his ideas. Just for example, he was probably the first person to define the personality types extrovert and introvert. He saw the unconscious self which Freud largely dismissed as a repository of suppressed desires and a source of mental illness in broader terms. The Jungian unconsciousness was not solely obsessed with sex, but a realm occupied by instinct and archetypal images that enabled the human mind to construct its models of reality. While Freud and Jung agreed that the unconscious was full of complexes, and we'll have more on what those are in a second, Freud saw complexes as pathologies that interrupted the proper functioning of the rational, civilized mind. Jung viewed them as natural, inevitable parts of human existence, with positive and negative aspects. In Jung's theories, a complex is a pattern of emotions, memories, desires, beliefs, and perceptions all tied around a central theme. They can be conscious or unconscious, or somewhere in between, and a lot of the stereotypical methods of psychoanalysis that you're probably thinking of are meant to provide hints into the unconscious complexes. For example, when an analyst and a patient are doing a word association exercise, where the analyst reads off a list of words and the patient responds as quickly as possible with the first thing that comes to mind, the analyst is watching the timing of the responses, looking for unusual reactions to certain words. Patterns in those responses might reflect unconscious complexes. All right, that was a long way to travel, but now we are where we were going all along, the mother complex. This is a complex in the Jungian sense, which is to say it is a constellation of feelings, memories, perceptions, and such like, all centered around the theme of mother. The mother complex is not inherently good or bad. It can have positive or negative expressions in a person's life, and it can develop out of many different kinds of relationships with the mother concept. It can come from an intense relationship, a distant one, or the complete absence of one. The mother at the heart of the complex may be the person's mother in the literal sense, or not. It's all very vague and frustrating. 
Knowing that Amuro has a mother complex actually tells us very little about his missing mother or their relationship before the events of the show. Only that, for him, the concept of motherhood is highly significant. Exactly. Young and his successors did actually develop some useful ideas about how the mother complex affects the person. And because they were writing in the early 20th century, they had lots of ideas about how it affects a young man. They identified a personality type, and let me know if this sounds familiar. When it appears positively, it appears as a bold and resolute manliness, opposition to all injustice, willingness to make sacrifices for what is regarded as right, sometimes bordering on heroism, perseverance, inflexibility and toughness of will, curiosity that does not shrink from the riddles of the universe, and a revolutionary spirit which strives to put a new face upon the world. And along with this, a tendency for the son to unconsciously seek a mother in every woman he meets. <laughs> Frau to shelter him, Sela to push him out into the world, and somewhere far away, his birth mother. But the role she is to play in his life, as yet undetermined. Okay, that fits pretty well. But... It seems a little weird that this peculiar bit of turn-of-the-century European psychoanalysis would find its way into a 1979 giant robot anime, doesn't it? Well, Jung's theories of analytical psychology actually had a huge influence on Japan from about 1965 onward, thanks to the enormous influence of Japanese clinical psychology pioneer Kawai Hayao. Professor Kawai trained in Jungian techniques in the U.S. and in Hungary before returning to Japan, where... According to Kyoto University's profile on him, he synthesized Jungian theories with long-standing Japanese cultural ideas and practices, and built the foundations for clinical psychology and psychotherapy in Japan. He trained a whole generation of psychologists and therapists in Jungian ideas, and he actually wrote the ethics textbook that is being used in all Japanese primary schools. So you can see this influence in other Japanese pop culture too, even today. If you're familiar with the Shin Megami Tensei series of video games, or its extremely popular spin-off Persona, those might as well be Young's idea of the unconsciousness, the game. I'm still reeling from the idea that elementary schoolers have an ethics textbook. I'm both deeply intrigued and also horrified. I love the idea of making children think about ethics because I think children think about it anyway and treating it as a serious subject worth of discussion, worth discussion is really cool to me. But I feel like most of the time what that means is indoctrination, not teaching them to think about ethics, but telling them what ethics they are supposed to have. I mean, that's just schooling. <laughs> We referred briefly to the scene where Amaro lands, quote unquote, on the white base, uh, and it's a similarity to landing on an aircraft carrier. Now, landing on an aircraft carrier is considered one of the most difficult things a Navy pilot will ever do. The flight deck is only 500 feet or so, not nearly enough space for a heavy high-speed jet to land. So they use their tail hook, which is exactly what it sounds like, to catch one of four arresting wires, cables woven from high tensile steel wire and stretched across the deck. These wires are attached on both ends to hydraulic cylinders below deck, and it is this system of hydraulic cylinders that slows the plane. It can stop a 54,000-pound aircraft traveling 150 miles an hour in two seconds. Wow. And only 315 feet. <laughs> 
Some parts of this process would necessarily work differently in space, but the size difference between the core fighter and the white base make this operation much more feasible. And this system would mean that the core fighter wouldn't need some other means of arresting its forward momentum. Since they are in a vacuum, simply cutting the engines wouldn't be enough. Their momentum would keep them going since there's no friction to slow them down. They would either need like jets that go in the opposite direction to counter that momentum or... You get into some pretty complicated systems unless you can stop it by hooking on to the white base. In European literature, the innocuous fool enjoys special privileges. They are exempt from many social conventions. They have greater freedom of speech than others. In King Lear, for example, the fool is one of only three people who speak wisely to Lear and the only one not punished for it. Wise fools can reject cultural norms that they deem counterproductive, calling attention to them in the process. It seems like this is the role that Kai wants to fill in this episode. He wants to be the one speaking the truth that no one else will speak, saying the things that make other people uncomfortable, and with the freedom to do that that being an outsider gives him. When he says, oh, I'm just a coward... He's really creating space for himself to say what he wants and space for them to not to not punish him socially in the way that they might if he were more part of the group. In that scene, at least, the parallels to a more European or Western fool archetype are very apparent. In our search for archetypes in traditional Japanese theater, I found an intriguing blog entry detailing no archetypes. No being a style of Japanese music, theater, and dance. This blog listed as one of the eight types the skeptic, one who doubts everything, courses of action, sincerity, truth, and doesn't that just sound like Kai all over? But the blog had no references or citations, so it sent us down a research rabbit hole. And unfortunately, there are not a lot of good sources in English on the internet about no. Practically everything either comes from the perspective of the Japanese side, in which case there's a lot of terminology that is defined but not explained, or coming from the Western side, in which case you get a lot of patently ridiculous, the strange and mystical no tradition, which has its origins in ancient Japan, contains within itself the soul of the Japanese people, and other Orientalist nonsense. Which is to say, after a lot of searching, we couldn't find this exact idea of the skeptic expressed anywhere else, but found many possible influences for Kai's character and his role in the story. For instance, there is a no mask called Ayakashi, which translates to mysterious or suspicious warrior. This mask is used for warriors and ghosts who are vindictive or die with grudges. These characters are strong-willed and full of spite against the world. Are those ghost warriors? Warrior ghosts? Either! But a vindictive... Warrior, full of spite against the world and strong-willed, also sounds like Kai. Does. In No, the protagonist is called the Shite, and we also have the supporting actor, or Waki, who is not always an antagonist. The Waki plays the important role of confronting and drawing out the Shite. They're a foil, a counterpoint. I've seen the Waki defined some places as the questioner the one who asks, and thereby moves the story forward. Interestingly, the Waki is the unmasked. In No, almost all performers wear highly stylized traditional masks, but the Waki is unmasked. 
And because of the aesthetics of no tradition, the walkie is required to maintain their unmasked face as though it were a mask. To quote one famous authority on no, to feel 10 and show seven. No text is also chanted or sung rather than spoken. Each play is composed of a sequence of different types of chants. One of those chants is called rongi and consists of questions and answers sung between the actors or between the shite and the chorus. In this episode and in previous episodes, we've seen Kai not acting so much, but drawing out everyone else's personalities, forcing them to react, forcing them to examine what is otherwise going unexamined. And in this way, Kai acts like the Waki. He acts like the questioner and forces the principal characters, the actors. And I mean that more in the sense of one who acts rather than a performer. But he forces them to display their innermost feelings, show how they feel, reveal themselves, not just through action, but also through their reactions to him. And in asking these questions removes some of the mask of socialization, of politeness from everyone's speech and behavior. And speaking of masks, we see with Kai the presentation of what he wants everyone to believe is an unmasked self. What he wants to seem like real, authentic, unvarnished. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but also, we realize that that's not actually Kai. That's also a mask. That Kai does want to be included. That he wants to be respected. He wants his contributions to be acknowledged. As with a lot of what we talk about here, we can't know that this particular art form influenced Tomino or the other writers. We we can't know that they were drawing on this tradition when they wrote the character or the story. But it seems likely that they would have been exposed to some of the plays and some of the ideas in school and that it would have been part of their education. They either saw some of these plays or they saw things that were influenced by them in the same way that a writer in the Western tradition cannot avoid being influenced by Shakespeare. Since we're talking about no, in the course of our research, we turned up something called kakeri, or the anguish dance, which is a style of dance performed during certain no plays by someone who has gone a little mad. Often, this character is a warrior who has died and who has ascended, or descended, depending on your perspective, to Shura, the Buddhist realm of constant, never-ending warfare. And in reading about the Anguish Dance, I was reminded of Amuro last episode, when he goes into his battle frenzy. You mentioned to me when you were doing this research that the Anguish Dance typically involves warriors who are reluctant warriors. Exactly. One of the most famous of them involves a prince from the early, early days of Japanese history, who, while being a great warrior and born into a warrior clan, was also a great artist, a poet, a musician, and really just wanted to spend his days playing the lute, but because of the necessities of the time, found himself becoming a very prominent warrior, dying in battle, and then becoming trapped in this afterlife of unrelenting warfare. When his ghost appears, he performs the anguish dance.
After seeing the conflict between Bright and Lieutenant Reed, I did some research on Bright's rights as the temporary commander of the White Base. When the commanding officer of a ship is killed, command then passes to the next officer in the line of command who is attached to the ship and on board her, in this case, our lowly Ensign Bright. Once he succeeded to that command, he remains in command until he is relieved by a competent authority. Commandant Watkine could perhaps have relieved Bright, but he declined to do so. It's unclear whether Lieutenant Reed has the authority, but either way, he has also declined to relieve Bright. Somehow, even though no one gives him any credit, and everyone keeps threatening to court-martial him, Bright Noah remains the duly authorized commanding officer of the White Base. Next week, we'll return with episode 1.8, Family Men Like Us, to talk about Who put this lake here? Widows and orphans. You don't have to stay here, but you can't go home. Romantic pratfalls. If the mountain won't come to Mirai. Kai likes this kind of keikaku. Spare me your blushes. Flirty fries, best fry. And curse your sudden but inevitable nyeera. Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all the podcast things. Like, subscribe, share, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast. Check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for episodes, show notes, and more. And you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or come shout your wrong Gundam opinions to us directly by coming to scenic New York City and yelling that Gundam should be watched in chronological order, not production order on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Really, over Amos, Amuro, Amu, Amulet. <laughs> Are you hungry? <laughs> and, uh, you know, 2,000 pounds or whatever. Yeah. It'd be way more than 2,000 pounds, wouldn't it? Well, let me think about this. <laughs> How many pounds per person? Yeah. Well, some of those people are babies. Right. They, <laughs> you can do the math later. People tend to lose weight while they're in space. I never said I was a good person. <laughs> I never said, I'm Tom, Gundam fan and good person. Bright has a great punch. Apparently. Though we see Kai is quite good at taking a punch. He gets knocked down, but he seems all right. His cheek's a little swollen. Yeah, he gets back up again. <laughs> no. Don't you do it. Don't you start singing. Didn't you know the vocal fry is the hip new verbal tick? I think you might be five to ten years too late for that. Damn it! When is it now? Um, something to do with Tide Pods? I don't know. <laughs> Gargling Tide Pods while on podcast. Mm, That's no. why they call it a podcast. Okay.